Welcome, welcome back to Rise to Liberty podcast, the podcast that breaks your government programming that you were all fed in a government school. Today, I'm joined by Brad Green, a Utah Libertarian Party member um, who decided to take the plunge and run for uh, U.S. Congress for uh, Utah District 2, correct? Yeah, that's correct. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, my condolences about the campaign. Just <laughs> just kidding. Um, Your congratulations. Yes. Condolences if I win, right? Because then I have to go to that cesspool <laughs> and try and make a that's difference. That's true. That's true. Um, so who the hell are you and why should somebody care? Well, that's, uh, right into it. See, this is, this is like a test that uh, you take in high school or college, but you don't even know what class you've stepped into. Like they're going to ask you questions and you've got some preparation, but you don't know what's coming at you. So, uh, my name is Brad Green. I am a Utah native. I have been involved in the Republican Party, actually, for several years, and uh, as a result of that involvement, I recognized that the party, the Republican Party, was not able anymore to really refine its message and support its candidates, and I wanted a party that was willing to fight for their ability to protect their brand and refine their message, and so I joined the Libertarian Party. I crossed over. However, I bring with me a lifetime of experience, much of which is in politics, more of which is in business and finance, and um, I'm hoping that that helps me actually break or shatter the perception that libertarians can't win, because for seven years now, I've been running libertarians for office in Iron County, Utah, both under the Republican banner and not, and I have helped 13 get elected. And Iron County has now a very libertarian mayor, uh, five city council people, four school board members, two county commissioners, a partridge in a pear tree. We, we've done a lot of we've done a lot of successful campaigns, and we're we're using the information I'm using, the knowledge that I gained from those efforts in this run for Congress, and it's significantly different, but it shares many of the same themes. So. You said that you were involved with the Republican Party, uh, the, the Utah GOP, I assume. Um, what was the breaking point for you, uh, anyways? A breaking point. So that, I don't, do I have five minutes for background? Yeah, of course. All right. So I got really involved in the Republican Party in um, about 2008. And I joined, uh, I went to my precinct caucus meeting and I became the precinct chair in Traverse Mountain. And Connor Boyack was my precinct vice chair. And I started to see kind of how things worked. But then the Great Recession brought me to my knees. I had to, I had to grow up a little bit and learn more. And then in about 2014, I moved back to Cedar City, which is my hometown. And I got really involved here. And in 2017, I ran for secretary of the local Republican Party. And they put me in charge of the Lincoln Day Dinner, which is the only fundraiser they do. And I brought Ron Paul into Cedar City. And for those who know who Ron Paul is, Ron Paul is a person who was in Congress as a Republican for a long time, but continually touted libertarian ideals and bragged about the fact that he was also a libertarian. Despite being registered Republican in Texas, he was also registered libertarian. And um, he, he was a... A very unique representative in Congress. 
And anyway, I brought him into Cedar City, Utah for this Lincoln Day dinner. And a whole bunch of grassroots came. They came from five states to go to this dinner, this fundraiser. They were excited to see Dr. Paul. However, what we didn't get was people that were in office. None of the quote-unquote establishment in the area wanted to come to this dinner, despite having run as Republicans for their office and got the Republican seal of approval. They weren't interested in meeting this Republican um, revolutionary. I don't know what you'd even call him besides that. He, he led a revolution with love as kind of its, as its core tenant. And so they didn't, they didn't sign up. They wouldn't buy tables, and it was shocking to me. And then Mitt Romney announced he was coming because he was running for Senate. <laughs> he was running for Senate at the time, and he heard that there was a big gathering. And he called me on the phone and said, Brad, I don't know if you knew this, but Ron Paul and I are friends. Because when we both ran for president, nobody liked either of us. They didn't like Ron Paul because he was a libertarian, and they didn't like Mitt Romney because he was a Mormon. And as a result, nobody liked them. Everybody hated them, and so they went and hung out together which seems a really weird companionship, but it's true. Ron Paul verified for me that that was the case. So as soon as Mitt Romney announced he was coming, guess what happened? All of the local establishment candidates or establishment politicians bought tables and chairs and tickets to the event. And I thought, wow, this is a really fractured party. A year later, I was elected to the uh, state central committee. And I saw that fracture firsthand in the party as we fought over the systems that the state of Utah puts in place that govern how the parties elect their their flagship or their lead runner. The party doesn't get to pick their nominee anymore. The state tells the party what they have to allow. And it's really out of the party's hands. And in 2023, the special election, we saw that where the party wanted to elect candidates with their convention system, but they were only allowed to have one. And so it wasn't really a convention. But signature gathering could allow infinite amounts. And so it was almost like an attack on the convention system at the same time as they're in this upheaval about one of their representatives uh, resigning and retiring early because of his wife's help. And so the, for me, what really broke the camel's back for me to join the Libertarian Party was when in the, I was the audit committee chairman in the Republican Party at the time. And I saw that we couldn't get anything done. The executive committee could never get a quorum. So we couldn't actually, um, we couldn't actually approve or decline um, the committees, I'm sure what they call them, they have like these extra groups of people, uh, auxiliaries in the party that get voting powers and, they, and all that. But we couldn't get a quorum on the executive committee because the rules of the executive committee say you have to let every politician at a certain level have a seat on the executive committee. But because they were disinterested in making the party strong, they never showed up. And so we never had enough people to actually get anything done. And in the state central committee, we, we always had a quorum, but because everybody was afraid of what the politicians would say. Nobody dared do anything other than resolutions. And so we had tons of strong worded resolutions and no actual activity. And then it would go to convention. We'd have all the delegates there and we would have some things that we brought forward and somebody that was famous, that was well-known would get up to microphone and say, Hey, the delegates don't understand all of these changes that we're trying to make to the party. Can we just kick this back to the state central committee? But the state central committee can't pass them on their own. They have to have the convention. And so it was just a ploy. It was, it was, it was a facade to keep the party from doing any business. And I was frustrated by that. And in the end, about the only thing the state central committee was allowed to do was to pick the convention venue and time so that the delegates could all have access. We were actually representing our neighborhoods. And after COVID, the chair people, the leadership said, well, that's really hard for us to have to ask the state central committee for permission on where to book 
and the state keeps moving the timelines along because they want more influence in national politics, despite only having 4 million people in Utah. And so they keep messing with the timelines. And so we never actually have negotiating power with these event venues, but we need to be able to house 10,000 people. And, um, and so the SEC voted to let the chairman unilaterally decide times and places. At that point, there was nothing else the SEC could do but pass resolutions. And since I've left, that's all they've done. And so that was for me when I saw the executive committee couldn't make any improvements and the state central committee couldn't get anything done. The party is broken at that point. They can't protect their reputation. They can't actually vet their candidates and they can't do anything to stop bad ones. And what's the point? And Republicans generally don't know that. And so I left the party to run as a libertarian, basically to show the Republicans how the systems in place have weakened their party's ability to put strong candidates forward. And in this special election, we've seen exactly that. We've seen so, weak candidates and the Republican Party hasn't been able to stop it. So it kind of seems like gatekeeping. Is is that fair to say? Um, I don't know from what angle. I mean, the, the government establishment, the legislature is gatekeeping the Republicans brand. You can't win in Utah. This is what they tell. It's not true. They say you can't win in Utah unless you're a Republican. And and so what they've done is they've made it so the Republican Party can't determine what, uh, you know, who's nominated as a Republican. So the legislature now has control over who can win. That's what they're trying to do. What they didn't expect was that somebody that had rep uh, reputation as a strong Republican was actually a libertarian and would join the Libertarian Party and beat them <laughs> at their own game. They realized guerrilla warfare was fair game. <laughs> hey. All's fair in love and war, right? Absolutely. So, so how is it, comparatively speaking, uh, your move from the Utah GOP over to the Utah LP? There's a lot of comparisons to be made. The biggest one, in the Utah GOP, there's a lot of people that are involved that have systems in place everywhere. Every county has a GOP. They have... Uh, precinct chairs, anytime you want to meet people in an area, all you have to do is call the local Republican Party and they'll put together a town hall for you. So for a candidate, using the Republican Party's framework, their structure is, is super valuable. Uh, outside of that, there, there is always kind of this group, what do I even call it? It'd be like the groupies, you know, of a band. Like there's always this following of people that give energy to any uh, up and coming star in the party. And, you know, that's an interesting dynamic. In the Libertarian Party, generally everybody supports and likes and applauds each other because we want more freedom. And as long as other people are also for freedom, you know, we like them. But the, the structure isn't built yet. The conventions aren't very large. There isn't a lot of buzz created. Um, the state really prejudices the Libertarian Party. For example, right now there's three Republican candidates running for this seat, and they have a primary, and the state's going to pay for that primary. And the only way they had a primary, because they didn't allow the convention to put more than one candidate forward, was by allowing signature gathering to put people on the primary. Where Well, the rules in this state for that process are static. You have to have a certain number of signatures. So in this congressional district, you had to have 7,000 signatures. Well, that makes it impossible for a libertarian candidate to get on the ballot as a libertarian to have a libertarian primary. And so I'm kind of in a waiting pattern because the state says the libertarian party is irrelevant until the general. So for the next three months, the limelight is on the Republican party. 
And yet, that I can maybe make that work to my favor. Again, guerrilla tactics. I'm building up this movement, for the most part, out of the limelight, which means I can surprise people. I can shock people all of a sudden the first week of September and have a big process, a big system put together that nobody saw coming. And I think some of them see it coming because a lot of the Republicans are backing me. Um, and most of the independents and libertarians are backing me. Um, but the the machinery most certainly in government is designed to make the Republican Party the only viable party in the state. And then to, and then to weaken it to the point where they can't enforce their principles on those candidates. It's, it's, it's really sneaky and sketchy in my opinion. And so as a libertarian, it's refreshing to see the positivity and the principles of Libertarian Party. I really love the none of the above um, requirement in the Libertarian Party, where no candidate can get elected unless they can beat none of the above. The Libertarian Party thinks that they'd rather have no candidate at all than a bad one. And that's cool. When I tell Republicans about that, they're like, are you kidding me? That's the coolest idea ever. We <laughs> can stop all this nonsense with just that rule. And I said, we'll pass it. Get it in your bylaws and somehow get the convention delegates to – put it in your constitution get the delegates to approve it. Um, anyway, the, the Libertarian Party has a lot of really cool things going for it, but it needs a lot more structure under it to make it so that you don't need to be somebody that already has a political machine before you have a chance. I would, I would have to agree with that. Uh, I, I think that there was a lot of haphazardness uh, you know, throughout previous leadership – it was just kind of uh, more of an afterthought is what it seems like to me than an actual attempt at taking any sort of political control. Um, there was an ideological thing. It's still really common among libertarians around the country that they don't really try to get elected. What they try and do is to make a big enough impact that one side or the other will negotiate with the libertarian candidate on an issue and so the libertarian gets enough strength to throw the election potentially, and then one candidate or the other says, okay, look, I'll appoint you to a position in my government if I win, or I'll change my platform and allow some accountability. It's kind of like you saw in Congress where Senator McCar or Speaker McCarthy wasn't able to get elected Speaker of the House because you had this group of, for the most part, libertarians in the Republican Party in Congress that said, we don't trust you. You're, you're a big government Republican. And so he had to agree to all kinds of stipulations that give them significant power, even though they're the, they're the tiny minority. Um, he still couldn't get what he wanted without giving them what they wanted. And so there's a legit strategy. I know um, some guy named Nick uh, Sarvsky, I'm trying to remember his name. There's a libertarian guy nationally, but that, that's kind of his approach is get enough strength that you can swing the election to the candidate that uh, will accept one of your policy changes. And, um, I reject that premise. That bugs me. I, I, you run to win because the people that win get to rule, and, and libertarians want to take over the world and leave you alone. And the only way we actually get that goal is if we get libertarians into office. And so anyway, that's my approach. We all have our own different strategies, but historically there has been a lot of that, not running to win so much as running to make it a difference, Yeah, and that's helpful too. I think it has its place depending, but that can't be the overall strategy. That's just a recipe for disaster. Um, they're, they're called line holders, you know, and we need them. Like it's, it's really important 
but um, that's not like a winning strategy. It's that's not a uh, strategy for a key position. So, and it makes it hard to keep ballot access. Yeah. You know, in a lot of the states around the country, because they haven't had any successful campaigns in the past, it's a hard fought battle every two years to to stay eligible for the ballot. Now, Utah, I mean, I, I have to give the Utah legislature some credit there. They have a mechanism that makes it relatively easy for a party to have ballot access. They have the even SB 54 from 2014 that I hate so much. It allowed for a party to either be a registered political party or a qualified political party, and it allowed them the ability to get on the ballot under really reasonable conditions. Um, and you know, there there is still the ability to have parties play a role. It's not like a jungle primary where there's you know one party can beat all the other candidates because of a primary. Um, I, I don't really value partisanship so much, but I like the idea that a, a private organization can put together uh, an effort behind one person and say, this is our person and support that person. Like that, I, I like that idea. I think that the state of Utah uh, creates extra fairness by allowing those organizations onto the ballot without having to be huge. And I think that's, that's a positive. Um, so Utah has some good things going for it. Other states struggle a lot. And I think Libertarian efforts in Utah have been stronger than a lot of other states. And as a result, we get better treatment, though not awesome treatment, but better. Yeah, I've I've definitely, you know, had some doors slammed in my face, but I have uh, definitely had a lot of, uh, I don't want to say praise, but a lot of like, oh, it's good to see you. Um, a lot of appreciation for even just being there in the first place. Um, when when I went to go run for state rep, um, when I went to go file, the uh, the county clerk office they were excited that somebody else was filing that wasn't a Democrat or a Republican, and they were like, "Oh, where have you guys been?" It's like, well, we're we're here now, so it was it was interesting. Part of that is it's just people like uh, people like things to be different occasionally. They like a little variety and an interest in their life. So yeah, I see that. My county uh, clerk was very excited also, but then I wasn't able to register for this seat. I had to drive all the way to Salt Lake to register, uh, which is okay, but that was an extra $100 of campaign expense uh, on top yeah. of the $276 filing fee, which is, again, it's not a lot of money, but it's um, it's just an extra expense I would have rather spent campaigning, getting to know the delegates, buying donuts for people that showed up at town hall meetings, things like that. Uh, it's okay. It does create a barrier to entry that weeds out some people that aren't very serious. And I think there's value in that. Yeah. Yeah. That's fair. Uh, I, I would have to say, I agree with that. Uh, as far as my experience has been, um, there are a lot of people who pretend to be interested and don't want to do anything <laughs> so everybody wants to be a politician until it's mm -hmm. time to do political stuff exactly until it's time to knock doors or make phone calls <laughs> sit there and read policy over and over and over you know and give it's... up your friday evening to do a, a video interview <laughs> yeah exactly 
or run a podcast. <laughs> yeah, run a podcast. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, anyone watching right now, uh, if you're watching this live, um, I was going to leave a few minutes for Q&A. So if anyone does have questions, go ahead, throw that in the chat. We'll answer it at the end before we wrap this up. One thing, uh, I, I had a couple of topics thrown at me that uh, some people wanted uh, clarification on. And so I thought this was a perfect time. Um, all right, so we'll just go in succession and you know give as long or short of an answer as you want. Um, so the first topic- Short answers are rare. <laughs> all right, first topic. Uh, the borders. What is your position as a now libertarian on the borders? It's a great question. It's not terribly different than what it was as a Republican. Um, currently, we have wide open borders and in the worst possible way. Right now, people can cross the border, and if they get caught, they get a court date sometime in the future that may be even 10 or 12 years away. And in the meantime, they're basically wandering around America without the ability to integrate into society. They're not legally here yet because they haven't been through the process. And so it's hard for them to get identification. It's hard for them to get, uh, you know, good work, honest work, taken, like treated properly at work. Because if you're not here legally, how are you going to enforce things like minimum wage, which again, minimum wage, I don't agree with necessarily, but if you can force somebody to work cheaply because they're not here legally, it creates kind of this slave class, which I'm, I'm, you know, taxes do the same thing, but maybe not at the same extreme. Um, you end up with identity theft as they try and get into housing, as they try and get onto insurance, they try to get into hospitals, schools. So you end up with this problem that's just a stupid problem to have, which is a bunch of people that are trying to get in here that maybe are opportunists. They recognize the border's wide open and they can come walking in. And, and you know, there's there's an argument to be made that people that are that want to obey the laws definitely aren't breaking the laws to get here. Although some of them just need to go somewhere that's safer for their family. So there's probably both kinds, but it creates this system where you can't, you can't expect legality out of people. It almost puts them in a situation where they have to break the law to survive. I think that's foolhardy. I, I personally, I, I run a business, I have employees in the Philippines and I want to bring them in and show them our corporate office, show them our campus. I want to show them the national parks. I want to just bring them here to vacation, but because they're from a poor country, they can't even get a tourist visa. Like I've spent thousands of dollars in several years trying to get some of my management, just a trip to Utah and I can't do it. And that's frustrating because they say, well, our borders are wide open. What I know is sure. If I flew them into Mexico, and gave them a backpack, they maybe it would be maybe dangerous. It may put them in peril, but they could walk across the border, get a court date in 10 years, and then they could come visit my campus, and then I could put them on an airplane back to the Philippines. Like, if I broke the law, I could get them here, but if I followed the law, I can't. My opinion, the borders... So, let me step back. The Constitution gives Congress the authority to establish a system of naturalization. Now, naturalization and immigration are different things. However, Congress through the years has determined that immigration gets them here and then naturalization is what allows them to become a citizen. And as a result, they have built up rules for immigration, what is appropriate to come into the United States and get started on a process of naturalization. And so I think that 
Congress has made this more about immigration than naturalization. And what Congress touches, generally Congress breaks. And what I think <laughs> needs to happen in the immigration naturalization borders issue is, first of all, we need to bring our military home from overseas, stop pretending to protect other people's borders, and actually protect our own borders from invasion. And there is some invasion happening right now in this immigration discussion. So our troops should be home on our borders. That's number one. Number two, we need to enforce the immigration laws that we have. And then we need to make them reasonable because they're not right now. In my opinion, what a reasonable immigration law looks like is that if you have some kind of a plan, once you get here, so you're not just wandering aimlessly in the streets begging, if you have some kind of plan, doesn't have to be a great plan, but some plan to, to be established when you get here, you have to pass some kind of a background check so that we know you're not free, fleeing the law, you're not a fugitive from the law. And third, we need to make sure that they're not invaders, that they're not, you know, some foreign military trying to just get interwoven into our society for a surprise attack at some point. So I think we need to have that background check and that system in place and then anybody that can qualify through that very simple process should be allowed to come here and contribute to our society. Now, that's a little bit easier than Republicans would like, and it's a little bit harder than Libertarians would like, but it seems the most reasonable approach. Now the question becomes, what do you do with those that are already here? In my opinion, those that are already here have to go through the same process. We should have equal treatment under the law. Now maybe they're already here and they have that advantage. It's easier for them to have a plan because they already have one. But it's possible that they're operating on a stolen identity and they're going to have to give that up. And they may have to go to jail to pay for that harm that they've caused somebody else. And that sucks. Darn. But it is what it is. Like they should be able to go through that same process, get a background check so that we know that they're not fleeing the law, that they're not invading, and that they have some plan. And then they should be able to be immigrated here and start their path towards citizenship and naturalization. So that's my opinion on the borders. Hey, I think that's fair. Um... I've tried to explain how contentious it is, even within the Libertarian Party. Uh, you know, you have no borders, some borders, weak borders, 100% uh, private property borders, 100% government border. Like, you have every position possible within the Libertarian Party. So it's never a, this is the one opinion of the party. A robust debate is, is beneficial. It's valuable by itself. Yeah. And so there doesn't have to be one issue. And that's the core premise of libertarianism yep. is we all have our own opinions and we should be allowed those so long as we don't hurt people and we don't take their stuff. Yeah, it's uh, it's a beautiful in its simplicity. Um, so the the next topic, of course, is abortion. Uh, what is or is not the right position for the government to have? Uh or is there one? Well, so I was a Republican, remember, for a long time. And um, while that doesn't, maybe doesn't fully inf influence my decision, um, I'm also a religious person. Um, and that does influence my decision. But I'm also a scientist. And that also influences my decision or my, my opinion on the matter. But I'm going to make it much simpler than that. I think that the recent Dobbs decision was appropriate in that the federal government has no authority to either provide for, fund, prohibit, or allow abortions. I think that if abortion is wrong, it's wrong because it's violence against a person. And all violent crimes are adjudicated, persecuted, or prosecuted 
in the state where the crime happened. So if a state wants to say punching someone in the face is not assault, a state has that right. But if they say it's assault to punch somebody in the face, that state is then responsible to regulate and adjudicate that crime. Now, personally, I believe that life begins at conception. I'm willing to argue maybe that you can't prove life until a brainwave or a heartbeat. I'm, I'm willing to consider that. But for me, life begins at conception. I think it's immoral, not necessarily the government should use their gun to stop it, but I think it's immoral to kill that life at some point where it is clearly a life and we can have that debate and we should in society. That's what we should be talking about. At some point, it is something where you should use the government's gun to protect that life. The same as you would a child running through the streets because that is a life. I mean, we would call an amoeba on Mars life. It doesn't seem too strong of a barrier to call a fertilized egg life. And that's where Ron Paul drew the line. That's where I draw the line. But as a congressman, I have no authority on the matter because it's a state issue. However, where I do have the authority is to say that Congress should not allocate any funding for abortion one way or the other. So it always seems as though any time a government has the ability or the uh, appearance of authority to decide who is and is not a person, it gets very dangerous and usually ends up in piles and piles of dead bodies. Um, so I agree. I don't want the government drawing the line of who is what, when it, that's, you know, I'm, I'm not even. About, the cool thing about our national experiment is that we have 50 nation states that have all decided to work together under one unifying agreement that we call the constitution, but they're each uniquely sovereign states, right? Like with a capital S they're states. Yep. If once, and, and it's a state issue, if one state sucks at doing their job, which right now most of them do, maybe all of them do, <laughs> if one state sucks at a particular issue and that issue matters to you, you can vote with your feet if your vote at the ballot box isn't good enough. Right now, however, the federal government has taken over everything, specifically resulting from the income tax, because they reach right into your daily life that way. But the federal government has taken over everything, and you can't really flee the federal government. And not only that, they've taken over the world by extension with our world policing powers and interests. And so even if you go to a different country, you know, things are different. And then they prop up their groups in some countries that they like and they fight against those they don't like. Like, it's a problem. The federal government needs to be brought way down. In my opinion, the easiest way to do that is to repeal the 16th Amendment, abolish the IRS, eliminate the federal income tax, and make the federal government go to the states begging for money instead of the other way around. I'm sold. <laughs> you had me, me at too. abolish. <laughs> you had me at an abolish. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's my number one issue. Ab abolish the IRS, repeal the 16th Amendment. That's my number one issue. That's the issue that, for me, virtually everything at the federal level comes back to. Yep. Once you gave the federal government the authority to reach into individual states and the people that live therein, the inhabitants of the several states, once the federal government had the ability to breach through that veil, the federal government essentially was given unlimited powers. And the ratification of the 16th Amendment is controversial, uh, but generally agreed that it was ratified. My opinion, it needs to be repealed, 
and that needs to be ratified too. And there is an effort right now, specifically in the Senate, to do just that. Ted Cruz is pushing to repeal the 16th Amendment right now. And if there isn't already somebody in the House doing that, I would love to. If that was the only thing I ever got done in my whole life, other than raising my children and loving my wife, if there was only one thing in politics that I could ever get done and that was it, I would die a happy man. I think you would make a lot of people very happy for doing that one monumental thing. Um, you know, it would be really hard for a corrupt system to continue functioning if they don't have the funds to do so. That's uh, how it was. They, they used to actually have to have a budget. We don't remember that. We're too young. Once upon a time, <laughs> the federal government had to pass a budget because the states wouldn't pay their portion of the budget until it was done. The federal government would pass a budget. They'd come to the state, say, hey, your state has 5% of our national population, which means you're responsible for 5% of the budget. And then the states would lobby the federal government to stop spending so much money. And that's a good thing, too. And then on top of it, they have the nerve to give us credit scores, even though they can't balance a budget to save their life. <laughs> and they're going to try and force those credit scores on us with the CDBC. Yes. I did a Which, uh, TikTok video on that if you want to check me out at Brad Green, Utah. That is in the episode description. Make sure and go give him a follow. Um, that actually is a perfect segue into the next question is 15-minute cities, surveillance, CBDCs, <laughs> the incoming tyrannical tidal wave. Uh, what, what's your position? Uh, do you have any opinions on how to fight back? Um, just where, where are you at with those subjects? I do. I think all of those things are definitely being pursued by tyrants. I think CBDCs, there's lots of evidence. Uh, Mike Lee is trying to run a bill in the Senate called the No CDBC Act to try and prevent the federal government from pursuing that. Um, it's not getting a lot of, um, it's not getting a lot of attention. It's not really uh, well appreciated by those tyrants in the Senate, but he's a deliberate sucker. He'll keep at it. Um, so the CDBC thing is definitely an alarm. So how do we, how do we fight against that? In my opinion, the answer lies in gold backs which is a small denomination gold currency uh, printed by a company named Valorum uh, under contract by the company called Goldbeck. And um, I sell them in my stores. I sell them online at plumberstock.com. I, I think if we had money that was backed by itself, then if the government tries to force some money on us that disempowers us, that takes our power away or our freedom away, I think we have a way to fight back peacefully just by using a different currency. So the answer to CDBCs, in my opinion, is goldbacks. It could be Bitcoin. It could be Monero. It could be Tron or Cardano. Goldbacks are physical, backed by themselves, can't be manipulated. Um, so as far as smart cities or, or um, you know, in, internment camps, whatever you want to call them, I think that the only way to really fight, there's two ways. Sorry, there's two ways to fight against that. Number one, um, Make sure you exercise your right to keep and bear arms so that you can't lose it. Um, that includes uh, training. Make sure you know safety training. Make sure you have marksmanship training. Make sure all of the people in your family, your neighborhood do. But that, that leads me to the second issue that I think is far more powerful that people are overlooking. We, if we're going to be able to stand up against that kind of tyranny, we're going to need organized, informed groups of people gathering together weekly 
like the John Birchers used to do in the 80s. I'm told they still do that today. I went to one last night. Um, it doesn't have to be the John Birch Society. It could be the, the Brad Green Society. It could be the Ron Paul. I don't care. You need a group of people to get together every week and you know each other and you know the strengths and weaknesses and you have the ability to contact each other, defend each other, support each other. And those groups need to start advocating in public meetings so that those people that are running our, our public organizations know that they're being watched and they'll effectively be restricted by the people because that sends a message that they don't have any room to do unnecessary and inappropriate things. And I was told by a city councilman last night here in Cedar City that the efforts from the group that I started here in Cedar City to do just that are so effective that even the tyrants that have been pushing their tyranny for decades don't dare do anything like that. And the bigger things, they're going to the ballot. They're gonna try and fool the public into it. And then when he talked to the city manager, the city manager says, yes, it's gonna to have to absolutely be on the level. We can't have any kind of marketing pitch in our approach to push something on the ballot because this group will sue us. So they know that we'll sue them, they know that we'll expose them, and so they're walking around on eggshells as they should be Good. as our employees. And I think that every community in the state needs that for our state to be free, and every community in the nation needs that for our nation to be free, and we're woefully unprepared, and we need to fix that right now. I would definitely have to agree. Um, I don't believe that there is one solid answer. Uh, that This is actually, it's a multi-pronged attack, so it's going to be a multi-pronged uh, solution. Um, two massive pieces to that puzzle, in my opinion, are Goldbacks and Monero. Uh, Bitcoin is not fungible, so that's a major issue. No privacy to speak of. Um, and Goldbacks, you hold it in your hand. Uh, another third lesser talked about prong in that, in my opinion, are uh, physical copies of books. I have been growing my library uh, so quickly in the past two years because once I have a copy of it, they can't censor it. So, Have you downloaded Wikipedia? Yes, I have. So I'm a, I'm a bit of a nerd. Those that know me, I have downloaded a copy of Wikipedia. Well, two. Well, I copied the copy that I got so that I can have one in a Faraday cage. Yes. <laughs> Just in case. The only way to go. Hardware. Um, <laughs> but, I mean, all of human knowledge, well, not all of it, but a significant portion of human knowledge throughout history is archived in one place. And just that alone would be worth literally the world 100 years ago. He who had that much knowledge 100 years ago could rule the world. And, um, you know, maybe, maybe it doesn't have the same impact in the future, and maybe it does. It's so inexpensive to download a copy of that with your high-speed broadband. And, you know, a hard drive you could buy for $100 on Amazon or Newegg. Um, I recommend everybody download Wikipedia and the instructions to restore it to usable for yourself. Uh, and then you write books. But my wife growls at me because I have so many books I don't have shelves for them anymore. <laughs> yeah, I have a dream of a of a library, like a huge <laughs> library, and um, a private library that you know, like Benjamin Franklin started 250 yep. years ago. I have a dream of one of those at my house. 
Yeah, we, we have a new rule in my house that I have to finish one of the six books I'm currently reading at any one time before I can buy a new one. <laughs> that's an absurd rule. If you can buy I, I thought so books too. for every one book you finish, that's a little bit more reasonable. <laughs> that's what I thought, but, you know, I, I pick my battles. So, yeah, I get it. Um, yeah, it's, in my opinion, this is something that we are facing that is going to change the course of human history forever. There's there's going to be a before and after, much like 9-11 or um, the invention of the light bulb. You know, it's it's going to be slavery. Uh, there, there was slavery now, and then there was a time before it, and then eventually the time before it will be forgot. Um, so yeah, I agree. Community. Uh, that's why I disagree with the sentiment that the Libertarian Party is strictly a, a political party whose only intent is to find candidates to run for office, and that's it. Disagree. Disavow. They make the same argument in the Republican Party. My civics group that I started in Cedar City, it's called Advocates for a Prosperous Community, or APC. When I started it, it was the leadership of the Republican Party and me in the local community. That was it. And now the leadership of the Republican Party, um, one of four, comes to the meeting every week. And the entire leadership of the Libertarian Party comes. Now, maybe that's because we converted a whole bunch of Republicans to Libertarian Party. Um, but sometimes the Republicans come. They're friendly with our group because we, we share similar ideals. Um, yes, the Libertarian Party should be used as that group. The Republican Party should. The Democrat Party should. The Utah United – I mean, parties absolutely are private organizations, and they, it's foolish to be only political organizations. Yeah. Because they um, take a lot to organize. I'm not a yeah. businessman. In business, you create a system that can generate some money for you, some profit for you. And then you use that system to add on new ventures. And you still have that system that continues to keep things going. But you're way more profitable with these bolt-on ventures because you don't have to build the, the basic framework again. You build the basic framework once, and you keep attaching benefits to it. And, and that's how things work really successfully in business. I, I think that political parties should work the same way. They should start maybe as a political organization, but they should have community service and outreach. They should have, um, you know, community gathering and informing and, and there's just so many things that they can have. And it's so hard to build the fundamentals. Why wouldn't you use them for other beneficial purposes? I mean, considering how much time I spend with the LP, uh, it would be nice to be able to get other services as well, like maybe go to a barber shop, <laughs> you know, so I can get a haircut more regularly. But it's, I, I think it's a, a downfall of a lot of society in general to be like, this is what it is and that's it. And any deviation is just not accepted. It's like, that is so foolish. You are wasting so much, so much potential which would actually turn things around in this country. Again, variety of ideas are valuable inherently. So continue to pursue that debate. So one, one question I, I did have to ask you, um, this is a little inside baseball, but um, what's your opinion on New Hampshire's most recent uh, crazy comment? <laughs> it was fun to watch. Um, <laughs> I don't know if you follow Nina Turner on Twitter. Um, 
I might as well because I see it so much. It's absurd. The it's either cognitive dissonance, ignorance, or malice. Um, Several times a day, she will pick something that she likes and say, this thing should be free. And um, (laughs) cool. When my kids say similar things like, you know, Nutella should be free. (laughs) Great. Cool. Who's, who's going to make it that way? Like, that's always the question, how, or therefore what? And the challenge, New Hampshire, it's a little bit um, flippant and certainly irreverent and disrespectful, uh, which I have no problem with. But they said, um, you know, you should be out picking cotton. Basically, they had jumped three steps ahead in the argument because if you're saying she had said medicine should be free. But therefore what? So therefore, somebody is creating that medicine, distributing it, stocking it, and and providing it. And where do they get paid? And if somebody else is stealing money from other people, which is what she advocates for, is taxes. Taxes should go to paying pharmaceutical companies, truckers, pharmacies, doctors to give you medicine for free. That's, that's her train of thought. She wouldn't, she wouldn't advocate for the truckers to work for free or the doctors to work for free or the pharmaceutical companies to work for free or the pharmacy technicians to work for free. She advocates that the government steals a little bit of everybody's money, pays all of those people so that people can have free medicine. And that is a, that is an argument that has been used very effectively for hundreds of years. The challenge is every degree of theft that comes in taxation specifically increases the degree of slavery. And so the argument, and so what I'm saying is they skip forward a few steps. They went, they went from explaining all of that and saying, okay, you want free medicine, that's slavery because you're stealing taxes to pay all these people to give you free medicine. They just went straight to, okay, well, you're saying that people should be enslaved so you can have free medicine. We're saying you should be out picking cotton as a slave. Now, here's the funny thing for me. And I, and I, at first I had this slapstick response like, that was a bit much. You know, <laughs> oh, come on. It's funny. Like, I, I, I have a sense of humor. And so I thought it was kind of funny. It was a little inappropriate, but I'm kind of, I mean, I was raised in a plumbing supply house. So nothing is sacred at a plumbing supply house. <laughs> Uh, and so I was okay with it. Um, but the absurd thing to me was there were people out there that actually thought that the New Hampshire Libertarian Party was advocating for slavery. Now, they, I don't know that they actually thought that. They claimed, <laughs> they claimed that they were offended because they thought that slavery was being advocated for. Imagine, imagine <laughs> actually believing that the Libertarian Party thought that she should be a slave. Imagine. It just seems so absurd. I mean, realistically, as offensive, perhaps, as their comment may have been for some, um, it's absurd to believe that they were actually advocating for slavery. And if somebody actually is that dense, (laughs) I feel bad for them. Really what I think happened was Saul Alinsky's rules for radicals are in play in both ways. 
she's out there every day repeating the same nonsense. Socialism is yep. good. Socialism is good. Pay for my stuff. And they're out there saying, no, you know, we'd rather not be slaves. And that's not getting any response. And so they say, yeah, we think you should be a slave too. Like that was kind of inherently, yeah. and, and then there was that long train of communications been happening. And, and then they were like, oh, no, you can't say things like that because that speech is not allowed. She's a black country. woman. You can't say that. Black or not, you can't say something that looks like you're supporting slavery. And, and it feigned offense that wasn't real. And it lost. That, that pretended offense was seen through by the masses. And they were like, what the hell is a libertarian? They went out and libertarians was trending, the word libertarians. And so while it was irreverent, disrespectful, and a, a huge risk for them to take, um, it was acceptable, um, and it was super effective. And maybe its, maybe its efficacy is more an indictment of our culture and society than it is on them. And again, I, I was raised in the supply house, so I think it was totally okay. And I, I, I stop myself from posting things like that all the time. <laughs> and maybe I won't. You know, like it was super effective. I try to, I try to be a level above uh, the pigs and the slop, um, despite <laughs> my sense of humor wanting to put me there all the time. Uh, anyway, sorry that that was it was entertaining. It was an entertaining event for me to witness that and it's still it's still going on there's still yeah. tremors that followed that earthquake and and uh, that's cool Good yeah them. yeah it spawned a whole slew of memes and uh, yeah. i jumped i jumped on that bandwagon uh it's stated that as a former vegetable farmer uh the the notion that uh somebody picking crops is inherently racist is something i completely reject and I don't, uh, I don't enjoy my former profession being put down like that. So yeah, I, I'm a bit of a prepper myself. My greenhouse is as big as my house. So, <laughs> you know, I don't pick crops. I have kids and they eat lots of free food. That's way more than the crops. They pick. But, um, yeah. It, again, it was, it was pretend outrage and nobody bought it. Yeah. Um, there, there is a, it, it's always the same people but it happens a lot um, of these uh, wokeitarians or the loser brigade. I've heard them called I've there. There's all kinds of nicknames, but that's not nice. <laughs> not my nickname. Just what yeah. I heard. You don't have to be nice. <laughs> it's okay. Um, so in your opinion, with your experience with the Republican party now in the LP, is there actual hope with the LP, um, regardless of whatever issues internally? Hope for what? That something productive could be done with it. Oh, absolutely. Um, here's what I see, and, and this year is going to be interesting. What I see is that the Libertarian Party um, despite only trending for 10 hours on Twitter, um, the Libertarian Party has sound principles behind it. And they have some really good people running it and involved in it. And I think it's actually 
for fear of self-promotion, I think it's actually possible that I win this election. And just imagine with me for a minute, if I win this election, take me out of the picture and think about what that does to the nation. Utah becomes this new kind of swing state that nobody's seen before. Right? The media is going to be all over that. They're going to be super interested, especially because we've now moved up our presidential primary too early so that we have more influence in the national community. And all of a sudden, we'd be like, well, hold on a minute. We now have, instead of a purple state, we have a pink state. You know, we've got gold and red blended together. What's going to happen from the the Utahns in the presidential race next year? And could the Libertarian that won actually win again in the full-fledged election the next year? And that gives Utah a huge voice. And it immediately changes the Libertarian Party's standing throughout the world. But there's 38 states in the United States, which interestingly is more than it takes to ratify a constitutional amendment. Uh, there's 38 states in the United States that are seen as a one-party state. In Utah, it's the Republican Party. It's seen as a Republican Party state. Generally, if you want to get elected, you have to be a Republican. So what I see possible with a, with a Libertarian victory in Congressional District 2 this year, what I see as possible is that all of those 38 states, instead of being red and blue blended into whatever party is the main party in their state, all of a sudden the libertarians from both sides, because the Democrats have a lot of really libertarian ideals, and the Republicans have a lot of libertarian ideals. Ronald Reagan said one time that libertarianism was the heart and soul of the Republican Party. So certainly the Republicans admit their libertarian roots, but both parties have a lot of libertarian ideals in them. And all of a sudden, whatever party is the, the one party of that state, it now has a libertarian party to fight with, and the libertarian party becomes the second party. And that changes everything. That changes presidential elections. It changes Congress and House elections. It changes local legislative and school board and city councils and county commissions, it changes everything. And so it doesn't become, it's really not about me. If any libertarian can break through that seal, it changes the whole country overnight. And the only reason it matters, and the only reason I bring it up is that I'm running, uh, but I am running a unique campaign in that I have a reputation specifically among politicos in the Republican Party. And they're not very happy, a lot of them, with the uh, results so far of their nomination process. Some are. And there are some good candidates. I mean, there are some strong candidates. One of the candidates has raised over 300 grand already. And, you know, one of the candidates, he was able to gather tons of signatures despite nobody having heard of him. I mean, there is some strength in those candidates, but there's not a lot of enthusiasm and so it, it, it lends the opportunity for a somewhat outsider like me to actually win the election, which changes everything else. And then it doesn't really matter that I won the election. It doesn't really matter that I'm in Congress. I'm one voice, and I'm like the super freshman, right? Like if a whole bunch of freshmen came in a year ago. I'm coming in a year late. I'm like a 15-year-old in a graduate program in college, you know? <laughs> and so my voice in Congress, despite the fact that I think maybe – the media likes shiny things, and so I would be new and shiny, and so maybe I would have significant media influence, 
uh, kind of like AOC gets because everybody wants to make fun of her being stupid, which I'm not sure is the truth, but it definitely plays well in media reports. Um, but I think I would have maybe a bigger bully pulpit, at least temporarily. But despite whether or not that happens, all it takes is for one libertarian to win a successful race. And the whole country changes because anything's possible. And right now, the political tables are so upturned already, just in conflict, that if you have such a shock to the system, it is revolutionary in a peaceful way. And it's it's really quite remarkable what the possibilities are if that happens. And I like I like to dream about it. And I hope you guys will dream with me because I think it's possible. So, I mean, I've, I've seen libertarians be elected. Um, it's not impossible. Um, of course, there's many factors depending on what race, what state, county, even uh, the person running uh, and their competence, you know. Um, their their charisma, likability, um, things that they said ten years ago on Twitter, you know, these things come up. Um, there's there's a lot of uh, sympathetic feelings I have towards the re the Republican Party and what the uh, the rhetoric is. Um, I am, I mean, liberty or death, right underneath my my Twitter handle. It's it's not just a saying to me. Um, so a lot of these things I feel very deeply and I agree with not everything, but that will never happen. And it, it always confused me because I never saw the path in the Republican party, because if the choice came down to it for me to destroy the libertarian party and we get Liberty or go with the party and we don't, sorry, but the party's going. The ideal is way more important than any social club. And I'll do whatever it takes. Obviously, not everyone feels that strongly, and that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But in your opinion, what what is that hurdle preventing people from from going with an option that seems a little bit more suitable these days? Um, I think, I think that, um, I think that what's preventing people from making different decisions generally is their own knowledge. Um, your actions are a result of your ideas, what you think you are. And I think therefore I am comes from that concept, that philosophy. In my opinion, education is needed, and that education is available in a variety of ways, but then they have to be able to understand it and accept it. And, and the reason why I think that a race like mine can provide that education is because it will be undeniably a learning experience. They will see something that they didn't think was possible or they didn't expect, and they will learn from that. Whether they care or not, uh, they'll learn from that. And with that new knowledge, their actions will change. And, uh, you know, in the Libertarian Party, I think that we, as soon as that changes, we will have to act differently to protect the integrity of the party so that we don't fall down the same rabbit hole that the Republican Party has fallen down. And I think we'll have to do that. I think we'll need different 
different efforts out of our leaders. We will need different approaches to many things. And something has to stimulate that. And I think that the education in this particular regard isn't formal education so much as learned experience. And so I think that if we can educate the masses that way by creating that impact, whether it's a one election, whether it's a big media campaign, whether it is just a whisper campaign where we uh, teach people just by word of mouth, I think that some effort like that can educate them that, that reality is different and possible than they expected. And I think at that point, things are able to evolve and progress in ways that they haven't yet. So this is why I view New Hampshire and the way that they handle their state party messaging. I, I view that as so important. Um, Ron Paul, obviously one of the most influential people, uh, the whole reason I'm here. Um, I can call almost anyone in my phone and they would say the same thing. Um, he is the best message wrapped up in the best package delivered the best way. And even he had some failures. I am not Ron Paul. <laughs> Repackaging his messaging through me is not going to work. Maybe. We have nothing to lose. Everything should be on the table. Um, as long as truth is at the center. Um, the One of my favorite quotes ever, surprisingly, comes from somebody. I, I enjoy him, but he's not like, you know, a monolith like he is to some, but Dave Smith said that um, as long as you speak truth, there's no such thing as too radical. And it's like, okay, I can stand by that 100%. As long as it's based in truth, it doesn't matter how radical or crazy it sounds, it's true. And that's the North Star. As a Christian, I think that is what Jesus did and why he's made such a big impact in the history of the world. It's also yeah. why they killed him. Yeah. But nobody's had as much impact in the world as him. True. Very, very true. Um, what message do you have to people who are on the fence, who are still with the Republican Party and just upset with what they're getting? Um, I'm not asking for like a pro LP thing, like a genuine from your experience, what would you say to them? So my suggestion to somebody who's on the fence in the Republican party is to question what it is that they value. My experience has been that they understand candidates, they understand personality, uh, personalities in politics, and they have some core issues that matter to them. And so for those people that are sitting on the fence like I was for a long time, just consider what it is that's your biggest priority and then look at the candidates that are taking that priority to the highest levels. And that means those candidates actually have to be trying to win and having some successes at messaging. But winning isn't the core of that, the messages. Because if you have somebody that wins but they're not going to take your priorities with them, then you've lost. And while they may have the name that you like beside them on the ballot, uh, you still lost. 
and um, it's it's something that I have learned throughout the years and something that is important in this election, and that is that the candidate that has your ideas most likely needs your help if they're going to succeed. It can't be on them. The candidate is just one person. And if I have your ideas, if I'm the guy that is, is heralding the ideas that you value most, which seems to be the case in Congressional District 2, if that is the way that it is, I need your help. And, and what I need from you isn't significant. I need you to follow and interact with me on social media. I need you to make a micro donation to my, my campaign. Now, if you're wealthy and you can handle a big donation, that's fine. But seriously, even five or ten bucks makes a huge difference because the number of donors shows political viability to those big voices that you're waiting on to tell you that it's okay to vote cross-party. Those people are waiting to see if there's enough grassroots support, and you can trigger that, and it'll cost you almost nothing. And so I recommend that you really get serious about identifying what your priorities are and then consider – who is it that's fighting for your priorities? And then support that person so that you have kind of this self-fulfilling prophecy. You're like, this is the right person. They're the one that really should get elected. And then just your energy that you put behind them can make that a reality. Um, you are that powerful. The candidate themselves is taking on the world. What they need is uh, several hundred people that believe in them and help them a little bit. Yeah. I would have to Either agree with that. You want to see in the world. There you go. Um, all I would tell anyone is just come to a meeting, sit and talk with us. That's going to be the quickest, easiest way for you to make up your mind and figure out exactly what we're about because I, I haven't found a better way. Uh, and I'm not going to recommend everyone to go read Mises or something, you know, <laughs> that's, that's a little too much, even for me. And I love that stuff. So, all right. Uh, with that, uh, where can everyone find you? Um, where can they keep up with you? Uh, the best way to do that would be to go to my website, bradgreenforutah.com. The other option is to find me on social media. I'm on every platform at bradgreenutah. Uh, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, TikTok, Truth Social, Telegram. I think that's it. Anyway, at Brad Green, Utah, find me everywhere. Brad Green for Utah is my website. At the bottom of that, there's a donate link, uh, or you can go directly to pay.bradgreenforutah.com and you'll get my payment page. Uh, that's how you can find me. That's how you can help me. And realistically, on my website, there's a form that you can fill out your name and your, your zip code, your phone number. Um, I'm going to be putting together, I mean, I'm already doing um, town hall events throughout the district, and you can host one of those, or you can connect me up with somebody that would host one of those, and I can get into your community and talk with people, and they can test me. They can see if my ideas are what they care about. And so you can find me in your neighborhood if you help get me there. Otherwise, find me online. Yeah, uh, District 2 is huge, so... You know, you've got a lot of ground to cover. Um, I love to drive. It's okay. <laughs> so with that, thank you so much for uh, tuning in to another episode of Rise to Liberty. Make sure and hit that like, subscribe, all of that stuff that we always have to say. We are shadow banned pretty much everywhere. Uh, growth is impossible without you doing that. Um, so if you found this valuable, 
share it, send it in an email, hit that like, because that goes so much further than you would think it does. Um, rise to liberty.com slash links. One last question before we're out of here, Brad. It's, uh, I love hearing the answers from everyone. Why does liberty matter in the first place? Without liberty, what else, what's, what is there worth living for? Liberty is what allows you to do you. And if you're not getting anything for yourself out of life, what's the point? Liberty is of infinite importance. It is the most important thing. And as a religious, uh, for a religious take on it, uh, LDS people, which I, I find myself among, uh, they believe that agency versus force is the ultimate dichotomy in uh, humanity. And agency is a word that is almost synonymous with liberty. And I think it is the ultimate good. Freedom and liberty are the ultimate moral good. I would have to agree. I really appreciate that answer. Thank you so much again, for everyone, for tuning in. Thank you, Brad, for being here. Let's get you back and get an update on how things are going, uh, regardless of how it turns out. Uh, make sure and go over to bradgreenforutah.com. And until next time, stay free, my friends. <laughs>